2006, November 15th. Today is Lecture 37, Jupiter and Saturn, which will begin in just a moment. We finished our tour of the terrestrial planets, and it's now time to finish the other four of the eight planets of the solar system, the Jovian planets, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune. And it makes a natural pairing to talk about them in two groups. Jupiter and Saturn and Uranus and Neptune. Both of those two groups of planets share a lot of very close similarities that allow me to talk about them together. Now one thing I'll, I'll point out about this is that the Jupiter and Saturn are not just the planets themselves, but they have fascinating moon systems and ring systems. We're not going to talk about those today. We're going to save that discussion for beginning next week when we start talking about the dwarf planets and the small bodies of the solar system because it's a whole different story. So what we're going to be concentrating today is on the main bodies of these planets. The key ideas today are to introduce Jupiter and Saturn. These are the two largest planets in the solar system, largest planets with a bullet. They are the prototypes of giant gas planets. In fact, Jupiter is so much of a prototype for, so prototypical of giant gas planets, not just in our solar system, but elsewhere. We refer to them generically as Jovian planets. <coughs> Jove, you may recall, was one of the names of Jupiter in Latin. We're going to talk about the cloud features. These are gas giants. They don't have surfaces. So all of the features that we see when we look at them through the telescope or with passing spacecraft is we're seeing the cloud tops. We'll talk about the colored belts and zones that appear to, div to divide them up east-west. And we'll talk about the very, very strong cyclonic storms that appear in those atmospheres and some of the things we can learn about the interiors of these planets based on these. We'll then talk a bit about the atmosphere, the stuff from the cloud tops down towards the center to the internal structure. What we're going to find is that these planets are gas giants. They're mostly hydrogen and helium because they, come, they were formed in the cold regions beyond the frost line in the solar system, and they got enough mass to be able to hold on to and grab hydrogen and helium from the primordial solar nebula. They also turn out to have an interesting fact here. All of the Jovians, with one exception, radiate more energy than they receive from the sun. So there's an extra source of energy internal to these. It'll turn out to be gravitational contraction. It's a brand new source of energy that these giant gas bags can have. And finally, we're going to look at what we think we know about the interior of these planets. This is based upon detailed studies, primarily from spacecraft data, as well as detailed computer models, that we expect them to have very deep, rocky, icy cores and very, very deep, gaseous atmospheres. These things are basically gas all the way down until you hit rock. But there's going to be some interesting details about the interior that we're going to see that really make them stand out from the other planets, the other two planets, Uranus and Neptune. <coughs> First, just do a quick at a glance where we are in the solar system. Everything we've been talking about up until now has been sort of in the inner portion here, about the size of my uh, thumb and forefinger here held together in a circle. That's about the orbit of Mars. So now we're in the outer solar system. First planet is Jupiter. <coughs> it's at five astronomical units. It takes about 12 years to complete one orbit around the sun. It's a very low eccentricity orbit and has a very low tilt. Saturn, the next planet out from the sun, now goes from five AUs out to 10 astronomical units, nine and a half astronomical units precisely. It takes 29 and a half years to complete one orbit around the sun. It also has a relatively low, in, low eccentricity orbit and a very sm relatively small inclination, about two and a half degrees, is the tilt of the orbit with respect to the ecliptic. So we've gone from planets that live between, like, in round numbers, between 0.4 and 1.5 astronomical units for Mercury through Mars, 
we have to jump all the way out to five and almost ten astronomical units to get out to Jupiter and Saturn. At five astronomical units, we're receiving one over five squared or one twenty-fifth the sunlight on Earth. At ten astronomical units, I'm just going to round up, Saturn receives only one percent the sunlight that we receive on Earth. So sunlight's starting to get a little feeble out here, but these planets look big and bright from the Earth because they're very, very large. In relative sizes, Jupiter and Saturn make the Earth feel small. Here I've drawn the three planets, or actually taken images of the three planets, Jupiter on the left, Saturn on the right with its magnificent rings, and the Earth is little blue and white marble sitting there in between these gigantic basketballs of planets. Jupiter is 318 times the mass of the Earth and has a radius of something like 11.2 times the radius of the Earth. Although you'll notice it's a little hard to see with this picture, Jupiter and Saturn are actually slightly flattened at the poles due to rotation. They actually look, if you sort of spun up a water balloon, it would expand at the equator and flatten the poles. These are big gas bags and they do exactly the same thing. Saturn is somewhat, sm quite a bit smaller. In fact, it's less than a third the size of Jupiter at about 95.2 Earth masses and its radius is about 9.4 Earth radii. So I've got a lot less mass, but it's in a similarly big size which is telling you that this is a fairly low density planet. In fact, its density will turn out to be less than the density of water. If you had to use the traditional school children picture that every school book I ever looked at, including the one I looked at when I was a school kid, they always talk about Saturn, if you could find a big enough bathtub, it would float. Whereas Jupiter, in fact, has a density greater than the density of water. So this is the lowest density planet in the solar system. But these are gigantic behemoths of planets. And you can see the Earth by appropriate scale. I've scaled these images very carefully so that they are in their correct size proportions. Just gives you an idea of how big these planets are. We've sent a number of spacecraft to these planets, um, both flybys and orbiters. Just, just very quickly want to review them. The first spacecraft to go to Jupiter flew past the planet in 1973 and 1974. They were the Pioneer 10 and Pioneer 11 spacecraft, which are currently on their way out of the solar system. They were actually put onto escape orbits. The same is true of the Voyager 1 and Voyager 2 spacecrafts, of which I have a computer drawing of Voyager 2 right here. They were twin spacecraft that passed by the planet in 1979. I have a lot of memories of this. 1979 was the year I graduated from high school. And, and also in September of that year is when I went to college. So I remember when the Jupiter flyby was occurring, when Voyager 1 was going by Jupiter, the local, so I was in California, the local uh, public television station, KCET, was broadcasting live from the Jet Propulsion Laboratory the pictures as they came down. It is the one and only time in my life I skipped out of school. <laughs> it was awesome. <laughs> It was amazing. The Ulysses spacecraft flew by in the year 1992. It was actually Ulysses was a, was, a, was a spacecraft that was meant to go to the sun. But in order to, to bleed off enough energy to get it to go very close to the sun, they sent it out to Jupiter and had Jupiter's immense gravity and immense orbital motion rob it of enough orbital energy to plunge it into the sun. So it kind of tells you how hard it is to travel around the solar system. You've got to play games with gravity. It's like a big billiard game. Finally, the Cassini spacecraft flew by the planet in the year 2001, getting a gravity assist to slingshot it out to the planet Saturn. 
There's been one orbiter put, in, put into orbit around the planet Jupiter. That was the Galileo spacecraft that arrived in the year 1995 and then was instructed to crash into the Jupiter atmosphere in the year 2003. So it had a remarkable run. And actually, uh, Galileo is quite a tale by itself. It had a high-gain antenna. You see the sort of hot, big dish antenna. That's the When you're so far away from Earth, you've got to have a gigantic dish antenna to communicate pictures back to the Earth. Galileo that was launched from the space shuttle and they had to fold it up to fit it in the shuttle bay. So they had this really clever mechanism which, in which the antenna would unfold like an umbrella. Literally just, it literally had ribs and stuff would dump out like that. A pin froze weld during, uh, during flight and the antenna did not deploy. But, you know, when you, life hands you lemons, make lemonade, JPL set to work inventing compression algorithms that allowed them to use the low-gain antennas to transmit some unbelievable pictures back from Jupiter. It was slow, but it worked. Some of the outcome of that, if any of you have ever looked at things like compressed video on things like YouTube and things like that, how can they send a full-motion video through the Internet? The heritage of those algorithms is trying to get the data back from Galileo when the high-gain antenna failed to deploy. And also, it carried with it an atmospheric probe that dropped into the, surf, into the surface cloud layers of Jupiter and gave us a lot of the information I'm going to be describing in a moment here on the composition of Jupiter's atmosphere. Okay, I spent a little too much time on that. Saturn, Pioneer 11, after passing by Jupiter, got a slingshot out to Saturn, where it passed by the planet in September 79. Voyager 1 passed by the planet on, in November of 1980 and Voyager 2 in August of the following year. Both were given a slingshot by the gravity of Jupiter. The additional slingshot from Saturn has since sent them out of the solar system. We're going to see Voyager 2 again. It was rerouted when it passed by Saturn to the planets Uranus and Neptune, which happened to be at that time all on the same side of the solar system. This was not actually original plan for Voyager, as it turns out. Voyager, they hoped it would survive to Jupiter, maybe to Saturn. Voyager 2 is still going. The Cassini orbiter was launched in 1997. It arrived out on there on July of 2004, fired its engines, and settled into orbit, where it has been since. Cassini has been sending back absolutely remarkable pictures of the Saturnian system. In fact, every week I go looking for new pictures and sometimes I even change the lecture in advance. That's why I kind of put the lecture off till next week on the Saturn system because there's so much stuff to sift through. It also carried with it a small probe, which you can sort of see is this saucer-shaped thing here on the bottom of this cartoon of the Cassini spacecraft. It was a Huygens probe, which was landed onto the surface of the moon Titan in January of 2005. We'll talk about those results next Tuesday. All right, back to the science the gas giants. What have we learned through all these spacecraft studies, studies with the Hubble telescope, and in fact 300 years of studies of these planets since Galileo first turned his telescope towards the giant planet in the year 1609. Well the first thing that we've, the basic fact I want to put across about these things is that these are gas giant planets. I've just shown Jupiter over here on, on the right hand side of the screen. They have no solid surfaces at all. No matter how far you go in you never reach the ground. These have very, very deep, heavy atmospheres consisting primarily of hydrogen and helium, and inside of that is a rock and ice core. Now, the fact that it's got a rock and ice core, don't fool yourself into thinking that that rock and ice core has a surface and you could stand sort of in a hydrogen-helium sea. It doesn't work that way. The that rock and ice core is so deep inside the interior of the planet that it basically merges se almost seamlessly into the surrounding material. 
So it's a very different state of affairs as we'll see when we get to the interior of the planet shortly. The other thing about these planets is that they're very rapidly rotating compared to the normal rate of rotation we see in the solar system. Where the Earth and Mars, for example, rotated about 24 hours to go once around their axes. Jupiter and Saturn in round numbers take around 10 hours to complete one rotation. They rotate a little over twice the twice as fast as the Earth. Now the way we measure that rotation rate, because they don't have solid surfaces, they don't have terrain to watch. You can't watch the cloud tops because that's like watching weather on the Earth and try to judge the rotation of the Earth from the rotation of clouds. So what we do instead is these planets, as we'll see later, have gigantic magnetic fields, and we can actually see the, the rotational modulation of, the, of radio waves from those magnetic fields, and that's how we measure the rotation of the deep interior of the planet. Finally, this rapid rotation means that just like spinning up a water balloon, these planets are relatively flattened at the poles. It's not as easy to see here on Jupiter, where Jupiter has got about a 6.5% flattening. That means the radius, if you measured it from center to pole, is 6.5% smaller than center out to the equator. But Saturn is about 10% flattened. And in fact, take a very close look at the pictures. You'll see, in fact, you can sort of be sensible to the fact that Saturn does look a little squashed along the poles. Now, this is a lot of information here, but the basic point is this. The atmospheres of these things are primarily hydrogen and helium and then various hydrogen compounds. So the two most abundant elements that you find in Jupiter and Saturn are hydrogen. Because it's cold, hydrogen forms into the hydrogen molecule, H2, rather than being atomic hydrogen. And then, of course, you get atomic helium because helium is a, is a noble gas. It doesn't chemically react with anything, so it just stays in atomic form. Together, these make up very close to 100% of the content of the planet. In this case, it's greater than 98% for Saturn. And those numbers, because I've rounded to the nearest one, 86 and 14, is 100 exactly, which tells you that everything else is actually, it's 99 point some fraction. And then the rest of that fraction is going to be the other compounds. So it's primarily hydrogen helium. But if you look across over here at Saturn, Saturn's got a very, lot more hydrogen and a lot less helium in its surface layers. We'll come back to that in a second. That's trying to tell us something, that some of the helium has settled out a little bit and left hydrogen behind in the surface layers of the, of the clouds. After that, the next, four most, next three most abundant compounds we find are, in order, methane, CH4, water, H2O, and ammonia, NH3. I'm going to use this chemical shorthand, just sort of make a little lookup table for yourself. CH4 is methane, water, you know that one, and NH3 is ammonia. But notice the proportions. It's always a fraction of a percent here. Now, big difference. Right? We just got through talking. One of the reasons I chose that question this morning for the finger exercise was to sort of set up this particular slide. This is a very different atmospheric composition than we've seen up to this point. Back down around the Earth, Mars, even and Venus, what we saw was carbon dioxide, water, nitrogen, N2. Here we're seeing hydrogen, helium, methane, water, and ammonia. The only common denominator is water. What's going on here? Well, the common denominator is hydrogen. Because these are heavy hydrogen atmospheres, we refer to these as reducing atmospheres. For those of you who have studied chemistry will know that reduction chemistry is chemistry involving hydrogen, chemistry involving protons. Notice what we have. The most abundant elements in the universe are hydrogen, helium, carbon, 
nitrogen and oxygen, and then everything else sort of falls down from there. When we had an oxidizing atmosphere, like we had in the terrestrial planets, we take carbon, carbon and do what with it? Carbon plus oxygen, carbon dioxide. Hydrogen plus oxygen, water. Nitrogen, well, nitrogen doesn't react very well, so it stays as nitrogen molecular. But, or you have oxygen when you have life. But look what we have here in, in Jupiter and Saturn. Hydrogen completely dominates. So hydrogen grabs any oxygen and makes water. It's the only common denominator. Hydrogen grabs all the nitrogen and makes ammonia. It grabs all the carbon and makes methane. There simply isn't enough oxygen around to make any appreciable amount of carbon dioxide because the hydrogen gets there first. And then, of course, you have hydrogen itself in its molecular form. So whenever you see hydrogen compounds and therefore hydrogen chemistry dominating, we call that a reducing atmosphere. Whereas in the Earth, where oxygen is the dominant reactive atom, because hydrogen in its atomic form doesn't really occur. It's too hot and the gravity's too weak to have ever grabbed onto much. We see oxygen chemistry, CO2, H2O, N2. So the difference between a reducing and an oxidizing atmosphere is the first main big difference in terms of, other than just size and location in the solar system, the fact there's a lot of hydrogen changes the whole chemistry that goes on. And we're going to take Jupiter as our prototype. And so a lot of what I say about Jupiter is going to apply to Saturn, although we'll talk about the detailed differences towards the end of the lecture. The basic principles are very similar, so I'll use Jupiter as my prototype. When we look at Jupiter through the telescope, or as we fly by in spacecraft, what we're seeing are the cloud tops. We're not seeing a surface. We're seeing the very tops of clouds. If you've ever flown on an airplane, which most of you probably have, or have seen done so, you've flown over places where it's cloudy, you know how you can almost feel like you can almost step out of the airplane onto those clouds? Same thing as what you see on, on, on Jupiter and Saturn. You actually feel like the cloud tops are the surface of the planet. What these cloud tops are very, very cold. The temperatures are between 100 and 140 degrees Kelvin. They're relatively low pressure in the cloud tops. And so what we're seeing in there are clouds which are made of crystals of ammonia, methane, and water ices. So it's cold enough for ammonia and methane, which are gases on the Earth, to be flashed into, get into ices. And of course, it's cold enough for water ice to be there. So we're seeing, seeing again, that hydrogen chemistry going on here. The atmosphere if we look at them, are divided into latitudinal bands, east-west bands, that separate themselves into layers north-south. They have a number of names. The dark regions are referred to as the belts. The bright regions are referred to as the zones. So you know, dark belts, bright zones. In between them, as the different wind speeds go on, you get different circulation patterns. And so you see cyclonic and anticyclonic storms just in the same way that on Earth you end up with latitudinal wind systems produce cyclones and anticyclones in the Earth's atmosphere. The big difference here, of course, is these cyclones and anticyclones, some of the cyclonic storms are the size of our planet. So these are gigantic atmospheres. <coughs> Here's a picture of Jupiter where the color's been enhanced. You see the uh, dark belts or these dark latitudinal regions here, and they're interspersed with some lighter colored bright zones. So they roughly intersperse with each other, a dark belt, a bright zone, a dark belt, a bright zone, and so forth. These lay out the equatorial, the tropical, the temperate zones, just like on the Earth we have equatorial, tropical, and temporal. We do have north-south zones, but we know those mostly as regions of different temperature. In this case, as these regions are not only different temperature, but different weather systems, high and low pressure, and so forth. 
So this is the basic outline of those. And then in between, you can see these circular spots. There's a sort of array of white spots. And then, of course, this gigantic red spot called, not surprisingly, the Great Red Spot. Uh, these are gigantic cyclonic storms that live in the interstices between the belts and the zones or down inside. For example, these white cyclonic storms are actually in this, this southern uh, temperate belt. So if we then take the atmosphere and that nice spherical picture, just sort of unwrap it and lay it out there. This again shows the, the latitude descriptions. We've got north is up, south is down, and then east-west is running horizontally across this diagram. The belts, these dark regions here, are basically regions where there is high gas pressure and high temperature. These are high pressure zones. Okay. What we're seeing here is actually the dark regions are actually gaps in the highest cloud deck, letting us see down into the lower, deeper, warmer regions of the Jovian atmosphere. The reason why they get these sort of funny brown color is because as you get down into the warmer, higher pressure parts of the Jovian atmosphere, complex chemistry begins to occur. For example, you end up with complex organic compounds, and a lot of the coloration comes from compounds known as polysulfides. So the warmer depths, the higher pressure is giving you some actual complex hydrogen chemistry going on, and you get organics, carbon compounds, and sulfides, sulfur compounds, beginning to form. The bright white regions, the zones, are low pressure. And so if they're low pressure, they're very low temperature. These are very, very high clouds. And so just like on Earth, where the high clouds are composed mostly of ice crystals, whereas the low pressure clouds, like the cumulus clouds, are mostly water droplets, up here we have ice crystals. Of course, we also have water ice, ammonia ice, and methane ice, because this is, after all, Jupiter out in the outer, heading into the outer solar system. And these essentially block our view of the lower, deeper portions of the atmosphere. So the way to think about it is the bright zones are high, and the belts are actually where there's a break in the clouds because it's warmer, and you can see deeper. And so this is kind of a little cartoon of that. In fact, what you get is warm material rises. As it rises, it suddenly cools off a great deal and forms ices. And that gives you the bright zones. So you're getting the very, very bright high clouds that are reflecting sunlight away and don't let you see into the lower zones. Whereas the belts, you get essentially a downwelling. You're drawing mostly material down into the warmer parts of the atmosphere. You lose that high layer of thin, high ice clouds. And you get down into the sort of lower layers of droplet and ice clouds. Complex chemistry kicks in. You get this kind of dark, icky color in that stuff as you make these, all these complex organics. And then you alternate. Because any place where you've got warm stuff rising, you've got cool stuff falling. Obviously, as it falls, it compresses and heats. So you get a warm, high pressure. In that case, the warm air rises. But as it rises, it decompresses low pressure and cools. So you get high, high altitude, but low pressure, low temperature. And that's what gives you the alternation in the, in the bands here. You're seeing simply upwelling and downwelling, hotter and colder, higher and lower pressure, respectively. And of course, all we're really seeing is a very, very thin slice of the very upper atmosphere of Jupiter. Same thing, sort of, same thing will occur on, on Saturn, as we'll see. Now, if you take a movie, as I've shown here on the right, this little repeating GIF movie, shows the wind patterns on Jupiter. And you can see that not only do the belts and zones distinguish themselves by the differences of coloration, differences of pressure and temperature, they also distinguish them in the differences of the wind speeds. So for example, you end up with these alternating places where if you take out 
the rotation component of Jupiter, what you find is you get an east-west flow if you're in the belt, and you get a west-to-east flow if you're in a zone. So in the direction here, this is west and east, so you can see the general in this bright zone here. You can see there's a general wind flow from west to east. But if you look up here in the, in the dark belt, you can see there's a general flow. You can sort of see it along this ridge line here going from east to west. So I get cross flows in these things. Now, some of these things on the, on the, on the boundaries between the actual wind speeds in these areas get upwards, like, for example, this, this bright white zone here. The wind speed's up here around 400 kilometers an hour, sometimes slower, sometimes a little faster, but the brightest sustained winds are around that, that speed. And then, of course, where those two rub against each other, you're going to get turbulence. And you can see that turbulence here in this middle layer where you can see these little rotating cyclonic storms. As the top of the storm is going one way, the bottom of the storm is going the opposite way, and it whips it into a whirl. And of course, the biggest whipped whirl you get going in here is the Great Red Spot, which has actually been visible now for more than 300 years. So this is actually a gigantic cyclonic storm living kind of partway in one of the dark belts and in the boundary with this white zone here. This is to give you some idea of scale of the Great Red Spot. This is a beautiful picture here from, from the Voyager spacecraft. You can see the turbulent eddies here, but you can see this pattern here of circulation in the Great Red Spot. The white belt is running in its wind from west to east. I'm sorry, the bright zone is running from west to east. The dark belt is running out from east to west. And where the two cross, you set up a gigantic circulation pattern. And for scale, I've superimposed the Earth. So this is a gigantic hurricane, if you, a cyclonic storm. Not a, not a hurricane, per se. It's a gigantic cyclonic storm. It's not a hurricane because it's an MNI. And we're seeing deep down into the warmer regions in this particular place, and so we can see the deep, complex chemistry. So that's the great red spot. It's a gigantic cyclonic storm in the boundary between a zone and a belt. And it's been persisting now. It actually was visible briefly to Galileo and his telescope, and has been visible ever since. Now, that's the atmosphere of Jupiter as the prototype. Let's talk a little bit about Saturn's atmosphere. In many ways, Saturn's atmosphere is very similar to that of Jupiter. We see this division into dark bands and bright zones, just like Jupiter. But there's a big difference. Saturn is about two times further away from the sun than Jupiter. It's also a lower mass planet. Those two things combined mean there's going to be a little bit less energy available, solar energy and internal energy, to drive the weather. So Saturn's a lot further from the sun, and it's colder, so the cloud tops are colder. So you never get rid of those high clouds that are blocking your view of the deep belts. Okay, so as you go into in Jupiter, when you've got a deep belt, it's warm enough, because of, among other things, because of sunlight coming in from the top and heat coming up from the bottom, basically melts the ices in the clouds and makes those clouds clear away. And that's why you can see deep into the sort of brown gucky bits at the lower layers. In Saturn, because Saturn is so much further away, you never completely lose those clouds. And so you end up with sort of a haze layer that kind of washes out the color. So you can sort of see the banding in this picture here, again, but it's much more subtly colored. See, also, because of the lower temperature, the chemistry is less active. And so one of the ideas is that you get less of the polysulfide chemistry and some of the other organic stuff going on because you need a little bit of heat to get that chemistry going, and it just isn't there. And so you don't form as much organic compounds, and you don't get the vivid colors on Saturn that you do on Jupiter. 
But however, there's one interesting thing that was quite a surprise when people actually got, when the Voyager spacecraft came by and could actually clock the wind speeds using the high resolution pictures from the flyby cameras, is that some of the winds on Saturn are incredibly strong. Some of the winds get up to 1800 kilometers an hour. This is the fastest wind speed seen on any, any planet anywhere in the solar system, including Jupiter. Now, there also seem to be fewer and much shorter lived cyclonic storms. There is no equivalent of the Great Red Spot, a persistent multi-century gigantic cyclonic storm. We see them come and we see them go, but they're on much shorter timescales, on year timescales, but not on these longer timescales. Now, occasionally, some very, very powerful storms are seen, but they're much rarer. So we don't see the kind of persistent cyclones we saw on the planet, uh, planet Jupiter. So if I take this picture here, Saturn looks kind of boring, so when life gets boring, throw it at a computer and enhance it. This is a beautiful picture from Cassini a few years ago in the orbiter, showing one of these storms beginning to emerge here, but now using computer enhancement to kind of amp up through the haze layers, you can see the dark belts and the bright zones alternating. If it wasn't for the fact that, you can see they did some funny stuff with the color, the rings turned kind of blue here. Um, except for the fact that there's sort of the rings and other stuff going on, you would almost think this was a Jupiter with the contrast turned down. So we do in fact see very similar weather patterns, but again, because it's colder and further away, it makes those weather patterns much more subtle, even though they're very strong. You have powerful winds, you do get cyclonic storms, in fact, here's a little one forming. It was nicknamed the dragon. You can sort of see the dragon, fanciful dragon shape in there. Now, where, does, where do these planets get the energy for weather? Jupiter's five times further from the sun than the Earth, so it gets 1 25th the sunlight. Saturn's almost 10 times further away from the Earth. It's only got 1% the sunlight. Sunlight powers the weather on the Earth. What powers the weather on Jupiter and Saturn? Well, when people began to study Jupiter visibly, you sort of, what you're seeing when you look at Jupiter with your eye through a telescope or with a camera in visible wavelengths is you're seeing reflected sunlight, sunlight reflecting off the tops of the clouds. But let's say instead of looking at it with visible light, you go into the infrared, you go into the place of, of, of thermal radiation. What you get is a surprise. Jupiter lights up. It's producing more light at infrared wavelengths than is being reflected back from the sun. In fact, you can do the accounting, it's about two and a half times the energy received from the sun coming out of Jupiter. So Jupiter's making its own energy. Where is it making its own energy? It's making its own energy from its immense bulk. This thing is a gigantic gas bag. And the gas is being basically held off by the holding off gravity from internal pressure. So pressure's pushing out and gravity's trying to pull in. And the two get into a rough balance called hydrostatic equilibrium. Okay, so gravity wants to crush the thing down to small size, pressure wants to push out. But if you balance the two, everything's cool. It doesn't contract, it doesn't expand, it just sits there. If you crank the pressure over pressure, it would cause the planet to inflate. If you drop the pressure off so gravity won, the planet would contract. Where does the pressure come from? It comes from the heat of compression of the planet by gravity. But it's leaking heat out of its atmosphere. So as it loses heat, the pressure drops a little bit, gravity wins a bit, and it reestablishes a new equilibrium at a smaller size. 
but that makes the interior hotter, so it radiates a bit more, loses pressure, and so it slowly contracts under its own weight. It's losing, if, if we could somehow keep it from radiating, it would just establish equilibrium forever. But it radiates, it has to. It's warmer than the surrounding space, so it's slowly shrinking, slowly collapsing under its own weight. As it does so, it's tapping the immense gravity field of this massive planet, and that's generating heat. For those of you who want to take 162, Keep that one in the back of your mind, because that's a mechanism we're going to see working in stars at various times in their life. So Jupiter acts like a pre-stellar object. So it's halfway between a planet and halfway between a, star, a planet and a star, but not quite. So we get this energy, and the energy released, in fact, can be quite large. In fact, this is internal energy that actually is behind powering the weather. Sunlight is too feeble to give us the tremendous winds and everything else going on. But the fact that I've got two and a half times more energy from internal gravitational contraction than from incoming sunlight basically gives me the energy source necessary to power the weather that I see on Jupiter and on Saturn. Now this is a picture of Jupiter in the infrared. You can see the bright regions here. Remember I told you how the dark belts were the places where you were looking deep inside? You can see that in the infrared, the belts are the bright regions, and the dark regions are where the high clouds are blocking the, the heat radiation coming up from below. And so the picture of Jupiter, when you go into the infrared, reverses. The dark regions are bright in the infrared, and the bright regions are dark in the infrared because they're blocking heat from below. Here's a picture of Saturn. It's a beautiful visual infrared montage that was put together from the thermal cameras on Saturn. Saturn does the same thing. You can see the heat radiation coming up from below. You can see the rings here. This was shot when the rings were nearly edge on to the Cassini spacecraft. And you can sort of see the alternating bands. They sort of did this sort of funny see-through picture of infrared on the one side and visible on the other. Again, both Jupiter and Saturn produce more radiation internally than they ever get from the sun. And that energy is what powers their weather. If I was to peel open Jupiter, what would I see on the inside? Well, what I would find is it's mostly hydrogen. It's a big, fat hydrogen gas bag. And deep in the interior is a rocky, icy core. This is the kernel. This is the seed that was used to grow the original planet. In the outer solar system, the planetesimals have ices. The ices make them super sticky and also make them very massive. And so whereas in the inner solar system, I can only build up to Earth or Venus size, out here beyond the frost line, Jupiter built up a core estimated in size between 10 and 15 times the mass of the Earth. But for scale, notice that it's about the size of the Earth. So this thing is 10 to 15 times denser than the Earth on average. Around that core, the gravity was sufficient to start sucking up the hydrogen and helium from the surrounding nebula, and you built this extremely deep, very, very heavy hydrogen-helium atmosphere. Now, at the very top of the atmosphere, hydrogen forms into a molecular form, H2. So we talk about molecular hydrogen. Once you get past the outer parts of the atmosphere, the, it isn't going to be so much a gas anymore as it gets kind of mushy. Okay, it's getting very much higher pressure and gas at very high pressure. The density pretty soon gets above the density of water. Then it starts getting up to the density of rock, but it's still gaseous. It's still kind of like a big, mushy gas. And then you reach a pressure of about 4 million atmospheres. And then hydrogen does something really weird. It turns into a metallic fluid. Hydrogen, when compressed to exceedingly high pressures, and those pressures, again, are about 4 million times the atmospheric pressure on Earth turns into a metallic liquid. It's metallic, it's electrically conducting, and it's liquid. 
Hmm, the last time we saw a flowing liquid, it was on the Earth in the outer liquid iron nickel core. Currents begin to flow in that, and as the flow currents go, it generates electric currents, and electric currents generate magnetic fields. So it's this deep metallic hydrogen layer, liquid metallic hydrogen, that's actually going to give Jupiter a tremendous magnetic field. And again, to give you a sense of scale, I put the Earth down here. So we have a rocky core surrounded by a very, very high pressure metallic hydrogen envelope. If I let the pressure off, it's no longer going to be metallic. So there's going to be a transition between being just gas and mush of molecules to being a metallic layer. Saturn on the inside for scale, first of all, you can see it's a little flattened at the poles. It also has a rocky icy core, maybe 10 to 12 times the mass of the Earth. It also has a big, heavy molecular hydrogen atmosphere, but because it's a lower density world with a lower mass, it doesn't have as big of a metallic hydrogen mantle down here like Jupiter does. But it's still, at a deep layer, the pressure finally rises to 4 million atmospheres, and you form liquid metallic hydrogen until you get down to the very center. So if I switch back and forth between Jupiter and Saturn, you can see that other than their outer differences, the difference of density, the difference of rotation, difference of mass, they're really very similar on the inside. What differs is the size and extent of the liquid metallic mantle that you find on this, and even the rocky icy cores are thought to be of about the same mass. Now, those liquid metallic mantles are going to be important to us. Well, let's play it all at once are going to give us the tremendous magnetic fields on these planets. We end up with circulation currents forming. The, hot, the bottom of the metallic mantle is, is hot. The top of the metallic mantle is relatively cooler. Whenever you have a hot bottom and a cool top with gravity going in the same direction, just like a pot boiling, the thing will actually get to going with circulation flows. You get convection currents going inside this mantle. Those convection currents set in motion electric currents which build magnetic fields. You basically get a gigantic dynamo. Jupiter, in fact, has such a big metallic hydrogen core coupled to its rapid rotate, mantle coupled to its rapid rotation, gives it the most powerful planetary magnetic field in the entire solar system. Now, this field is tied down to the interior and it rotates with the interior. So we couldn't use the cloud tops to measure the rotation of the planet because the winds are blowing every which way. So in order to measure the rotation rate, we actually watch how the magnetic field rotates. Because the rotating magnetic field produces radio waves, the way we measure the rotation speeds of the Jovian planets is with radio telescopes, not with visible or infrared telescopes. And so what we're watching is the rotation of the magnetic field. Since the magnetic field is anchored to the interior, that tells us what the true rotation rate of the planet is. It's because the rotating rate makes rotating magnetic fields make them big radio sources. And we can actually see the rotational modulation and measure the, the period of rotation is around 10 hours in round numbers. In fact, Jupiter's got such a big magnetic field that when you set that sucker into rotation, it's actually the brightest radio source in the solar system. It's brighter than the sun at radio wavelengths. So Jupiter produces so much radio radiation from its rotating magnetic field, it actually outshines the sun at radio wavelengths. Now finally, let's have a look at what the differences are between Jupiter and Saturn. We've talked a lot about how they're similar, but I want to end up by showing you that there really are some differences. There's a lot of variation in the way that you can assemble a Jovian planet. The first of these is Saturn is less dense. Saturn is big, about the same physical radius in round numbers, 11 versus 9.5 Earth radii for Jupiter versus Saturn, 
but its mass is about a third. That tells you that you've got a very little mass in a fairly big bag. It's got a low density. In fact, it's 7 tenths of a gram per cc, which is less than the density of water. Saturn is the lowest density planet in the solar system. In fact, Saturn could float if you could find a big enough bathtub. Now, because it's lower density, but it's rotating as fast as Jupiter, it's going to get flattened more at the poles. In fact, that's what we see. You can actually see that Saturn here looks flattened. That's not a distortion of that picture. It really does look that flattened. In fact, if any of you have gotten a chance to see Saturn through the telescope on Smith Lab, you actually can see it with the eye, even through a small 12-inch telescope. Now, because there's less pressure and lower density, it's less tightly packed, that liquid metallic hydrogen mantle is actually smaller than on Jupiter due to the lower overall pressure, which is due to the lower overall mass. And not surprisingly, Saturn has a much weaker magnetic field. It isn't as nasty of an environment as Jupiter is. Jupiter's magnetic field makes for an extremely harsh radiation environment. It was really hard on the spacecraft that passed by, whereas Saturn's pretty benign by comparison. But it still has a magnetic field. Furthermore, there's less surface helium. Remember the first picture when we talked about the composition, there was a whole lot less helium in Saturn's atmosphere than Jupiter. Not because it actually has less helium throughout. Remember, we're measuring the, comp the composition only of the tops of the clouds, only of the very uppermost layers. So where'd the helium go? Well, one idea is that the helium, in fact, has begun to rain out into the interior. When you go down and you start getting much deeper and hotter, you can actually reach a stage where helium can literally fall out as rain out of the atmosphere, and it falls down into the deep interior. As that helium begins to fall into the deep interior, if you will, the helium part of Saturn is collapsing faster than the hydrogen part, and that generates a little bit of extra internal heat, a little bit more than you would have expected for its lower mass and lower density. So, it's still kind of speculative. We don't know for sure and not exactly sure how to measure this. But that's one of the reigning ideas for what's going on with the funny helium abundance is related to some of the changes in the interior structure. So we know a lot about the Jovian planets. These are very interesting places, the giant gas bags. Tomorrow we're going to meet the other two Jovian planets that are actually going to look very different, Uranus and Neptune. I'll see you tomorrow.